0: You and I are called by God. We will be tested in our lives and we'll also be sent by God. Now you'll see this uh, paradigm, if you will, show up throughout the Bible. Called, tested, sent. The nation of Israel, they're called out of Egypt. They're called out of slavery from darkness into light. God calls them by his power and his grace. And then they're tested. They're tested in 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 the wilderness for 40 years they eat manna in the desert. Do you know what manna means in Hebrew? It means, what is this? They got this stuff from God. Like, what is this, God? So they're tested in the, in the wilderness for 40 years. And then they're sent. They're sent into the promised land. You look at Jonah in the Old Testament. Jonah was called by God, go to Nineveh, preach repentance. And then, of course, Jonah doesn't want to do that. And he gets swallowed by a giant fish. That's a sign of testing if I've ever seen one for three days and three nights, and then he gets sent back to Nineveh. Jesus was called by his father. Jesus was tested in the wilderness by Satan, and then Jesus would be sent. It's good to reflect on these things, our calling, how we will be tested in our faith, and how God will also send us to do ministry into the world. Now, there's really two categories of calling, though, because that's sort of a a nebulous general sort of statement, there's, there's one calling, which is God calling you generally simply to himself. This is the first and primary, probably most important sense of calling, that God is simply just wants to call you home, wants to call you and draw you to himself. Now, this is acknowledged in your baptism, as when we are baptized, it's, it's moving from darkness to light, from death to life, whether you're baptized as a baby or an infant or, or a young adult or an adult. Or if you've never been baptized, let us know. We'd love to help you with that. But it's acknowledged in that place that God calls us to himself, that most important calling, the primary foundational calling that God does for all people if they will listen, that he is calling them to himself. And then, of course, we'll be tested in this life, we'll be tempted, and then God will also send us. He'll send you to do ministry in the world. He'll He'll send you to maybe lead on a leadership team or, or develop a ministry or, or do this or do that. that, whatever God calls you to do. People have asked me over the years, how do I know if I should start a ministry? Now That's kind of the wrong question because you and I don't start ministry. God does it. God lays it on your heart. God does the calling. You'll know. It's like falling in love. You just know. You know when it happens. So God will be the one that will call you to leadership, will send you, the Spirit will send you to do work in the world. Now, for people in the clergy type, the pastor type, that is a special, unique calling, it's, it's not any better or worse than anybody else. It's just different. It's a different sense of calling. Um, people seem to think that pastors have just always been pastors, that we were just sort of born under the altar of the church and we came out with a guitar around our neck and we just were serving communion from a young age or something. You know, like, no, no, we're just people. We're people that God has called to do a certain type of ministry, but it's not better. Actually, if anything, we as clergy should be serving y'all to do uh, ministry in the world, to be equipping you, to be to know that you are the saints that God has called and sending into the world to do ministry. But clergy do have a specific type of calling, and when I was a a younger man, (laughs) and I was a camp director at a camp called Camp Carrollwood in Lenore, if you've ever heard of that, it's an old Methodist camp, now it's shut down. But I was praying with someone one night, another youth leader, an adult, and we finished the prayer, and he looked at me very easily, and he said, you need to go into ministry. And I said, okay. And I enrolled in a seminary, and I started doing that. And then when I became a youth minister and I worked with these two elders in a Methodist church and they had scheduled a, meet, a meeting with me and they said, you need to go be ordained to the United Methodist Church. And I said, okay, sure. It was very easy for me to see that it was God doing it. God does the calling. God does the sending and he helps us in the testing. And so there was the, the call. And then when you want to be ordained to the United Methodist Church, they have a thing called the Board of Ordained Ministry that helps you refine, define your call, to articulate it to understand it better. You write a lot of papers, you do a lot of projects, there's a lot of steps to it, I won't go into detail here. And then you'd go before the board, other clergy and lay people, and they, you essentially do oral examinations where you have to answer, you know, and even though they're very affirming and very encouraging, I was as nervous as a cat in a rocking chair factory. I mean, I was just really nervous. It was a sense of testing in a loving way because there's, you're sitting around at a table and they'll look at you and say, Talk to me about the Trinity. And then you have to give the right answer, you know, or something. What would you do? How would you apply the Wesleyan quadrilateral if your dog wanted to get baptized? Nothing, that, he, that was, not, it was not a real question, by the way. But these sort of scenarios, and you have to do this, and I was like, nah. and then you're sent. They lay hands on you in this beautiful moment where a, a bishop, a bishops and your, your mentors will come and, and people will stand and, and raise a hand of affirmation. It's a beautiful moment. It's maybe my favorite time of annual conferences when people be, are ordained and sent by the Spirit to do ministry. Called, tested, and were sent. Now, in the time of Lent, this is actually a very Lent should be a season of renewal. And it's It's good to reflect on these three words in Lent because it's God that does the calling. It's God that helps us in the testing. And it's the Spirit that sends us out into the world to do ministry. God loves us enough not just to forgive us and call us to himself as the children of God, which he does, that's our first and primary calling, but then he believes in in us enough to send us into the world so as we see these words in Mark chapter 1, Jesus is called by his Father, he is tested, and he's sent. In those, it's Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, "'You are my Son, the Beloved, with you I am well pleased.'" And the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. So the first thing of calling. I remember my freshman year of college UNC Asheville, class of 2001. Any, any alumni in the room? Did you go to UNC? I forgot that. You did, didn't you? Yes, all right. Good for you. Um, and my freshman year of college, this is what I refer to as my BC years, my before Christ years, and I'm having a conversation with my then roommate, and we're, for some reason, talking about how other people perceive us, as you do when you're younger. You're really concerned about perceptions of friends and whatnot. And he just sort of said very honestly, he was like, well, I think people think you're just sort of a cool, laid-back guy that likes to party. And I remember hearing that and thinking, you know what, he's right. That probably is the label I have. But this was a watershed moment for me because that's not what I wanted for my life. I remember thinking, "There's a serious. Cons- I have a discontent with that label. Even though it was true, I wanted more from my life and from God than that. That was a turning point for me, actually, in my heart. Not that I wanted to be more in the eyes of others. That's not the purpose. But that I realized that my identity, my calling, essentially, was based on false pretense. It was really a question of, who am I following? What am, who's calling me? And what call am I answering in my life? I had all the appearance of physical aliveness but I was inside I knew I was spiritually dead and that's not what I wanted for who I was see the the question of calling is really one of identity who do you say that you are we all have labels that are on us either other people put them there or we put them on ourselves but we answer the call of something or someone we all worship something even if you're religious or not We all worship something, something you shape your life around that defines who you are. So it's not just who do you say that you are, but to whom do you belong? Now, what did Jesus, what did the Father say to Jesus as Jesus comes up out of the water of his baptism? He says to Jesus, you are my beloved. In you I am well pleased. Now, people hear that and we think, well, that's Jesus. I mean, of course, the father, loves the son, he would say to Jesus, you're my beloved. But do you believe that God loves you as much as he loves the son? This is a very important question. Do you believe that when God looks at you, that he says, "I, you are my beloved and you, I'm well pleased. See, it's one thing to receive a gift. It's another thing to ditch the modesty and open it. A lot of times in our lives, we take things, we believe lies. Things like, well, I'll never be good enough. Uh, or, that sounds too good to be true. I'm just a sinner, I'm not a saint. Of course, God would love His Son more than me. I remember a few years ago, I was having lunch at a restaurant in Winston-Salem. And there was a young mother sitting near me, and she had a little girl in a high chair. And the young mother was struggling, as young parents tend to do. The little girl is crying and raising a scene and, and trying to feed her daughter. And the, the young mom is frustrated. She looks exhausted. And I remember she looked at the little girl, and she said, You're rotten. You're rotten. And I, I was sitting there eating my lunch, and it hurt my heart when I heard that. Because on some level, that little girl was being imprinted with that label. She was hearing that she's nothing. Now granted, the mom was frustrated. I'm not judging her. But I'm saying, our words create worlds. And our words can create callings upon people's lives. And maybe some of us have been hearing our whole lives, you're rotten. You don't deserve to be loved by God like that. See, we, we've been told these lies, and the worst part is that we're going to hear them. That's not the problem. The problem is that we begin to believe them. And that begins to shape and define our identity, and it shapes and defines our calling, and who we think that we are, and by which we, we grow around our lives. In Brennan Manning's book, Abba's Child, one of the few books that actually brought me to tears. He said, In my experience, self hatred is the dominant malaise that cripples Christians and stifles their growth in the Holy Spirit. Self hatred, our sense of identity and calling, is something other than what God says that you are. Yes, it is too good to be true that God looks at you and me. He says, You are my beloved. But it's true, it's this extravagant love of God. So, do you believe that you are God's beloved? Your answer to that question is the core of your calling, it's the core of your identity as a child of God, because you and I, we are not what we do. We are not what we have. Our identity and calling is not what other people say about you. Your identity and calling is that you are God's beloved son or daughter. That is your only true identity. That is what will live on after this life is over. That is your highest and best calling. The early church would write about this and would, in the way that they could back then, just sort of, it was blowing their minds about this love of of God. First John chapter 3, the apostle John says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. It's astounding to Him. And it should be astounding to us. God looks in you, at you and me and says, you are my beloved. I don't just love you enough to call you to myself. I love you enough to then make you a priest, a minister with a high and holy calling. First Peter would say that you are all be- saints in the Lord, the priesthood of all believers, We're called through our baptism. God calls us to himself. We've been called from death to life. And it's important to reflect on our belovedness, especially during Lent, our belovedness that God has for us. It's good to know that basic, most important calling because when the testing comes, we need that foundation to build our lives on. And Jesus was tested. Look again at these verses from Mark 1. And the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan. He was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. Uh, Now, Matthew chapter 4 goes into much greater detail about Jesus' testing. The Greek word here is actually better translated as testing and not temptation. Jesus was tested. Seriously, he's in the wilderness, he's hungry, he's thirsty, there's wild beasts. They've, archaeologists have found evidence of lions that lived in that area back then. Isn't that interesting? Uh, of course, there were bears. I mean, serious, serious testing was going on. So not just the physical testing, but spiritually Jesus is being tested. And because if you and I will be tested in our lives, we can know if, that if the testing is really real from the evil one, it will always be deceptive, always. It'll sound good but it'll be deceptive. It's not always obvious. It's, it, Satan's not the sort of caricature like, a, like we grew up with cartoons as kids, like Looney Tunes. He doesn't come that directly sort of saying, hi, I'm Satan. I'd like to ruin your life today. No, it's not quite that obvious. He always works in the shadows. He always takes something that sounds good and twists it to lure us away from God. Satan and his demons only tempt those or test those from whom they have something to gain. That's, they only do that. At the heart of his, Satan's testing of Jesus, and of course of us, at the heart of his testing is this. There are promises to, to rise and not to fall. Every time. There are promises for more than you think it's going to be, but it's always a lie. For example, in the book of Genesis, when the tempter, the serpent, tests or tempts Adam and Eve... He says, he doesn't say, Do you wish to be as the devil? No. He says, Do you wish to be as God? Well, if you do, he follows up with Adam and Eve. If you do want to be like God, just eat of the fruit. There's always an if statement with Satan. And you see it here with Jesus. If you really are the Son of God, take those stones and turn them into bread. Jump off that mountain, see if you die if you really are the son of God. See, Satan uses if statements to imply that maybe it's not as free as you thought it was going to be. In 2005, my wife and I were preparing to get married and me being a young husband wanting to provide and take care of all housing and things of that nature, I didn't have any equity. <laughs> I didn't have a lot of money, and, but I knew we needed a place to live. So I was trying to get a loan For a new home. And so I got in touch with some mortgage lender in Charlotte and he had this fantastic deal for me to take him up on. He said, you won't have to make any payments for a little bit. They'll be really low payments. It's going to be just fine. So I passed it on to my father-in-law who's an accountant, very wise business person. I said, what do you think about this? Because I knew absolutely nothing about mortgages. They don't teach you any of this stuff when you're in college. He said, I think they're sprinkling fairy dust on this thing. I'd stay away. And I did. And turns out it was an uh, interest-only loan with, adjusti- with an adjustable rate that was going to adjust quite high in about two years. And as we saw in 2008, a lot of people did sign up for those loans. And they started with a lot of if statements. If you sign up, commit today, no money down. If you sign up for three years, you'll only pay $10 a month, and then it'll be $300 a month after that. If statements are really what you call a bait and a switch. They usually rely on fine print. And that's what Satan's doing here with Jesus. He's no self-respecting Satan would come and say, hi, I'd like to destroy your life. No, no, no. That's in the bottom, that juicy tidbit. is in a place that you can barely see So Jesus is tested by these if statements, promises, but Jesus, what does he do to ward those temptations and testings off? He quotes scripture. He says, no, 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 you shall not test the Lord your God. He quotes the Bible back at the enemy. That's why it's good to to know scripture because then we can use it in our arsenal to ward off temptation. That's not true, devil. That's not what God's word says. This is what it says. Get away, you're always a liar. So Jesus was tested but he didn't break. He didn't break. When my son was younger, like a lot of little boys, he was really into trains, like obsessed with trains. When he was two, we bought him a little, you know, a big uh, train table. You've seen these, wooden, oh, beautiful things. With all the trains on and the tracks, no exaggeration. That kid stood around that table on Christmas day for eight hours, nonstop. He ate food while playing. So we'd go to train museums, we'd go to Spencer and see the big, the big black engine, we'd go to see Thomas at Tweetsie. We bought season passes to Tweetsie. We would do all these things. And I've learned through all my train experience that when in the United States they were building train tracks across the United States, in their haste, their quickness to want to lay down rail, because the more you lay down, the more the government would pay you, they would quickly try and throw these tracks out across the West. Now these were one-way, one-way rails, so that's why they were always checking their watches. Because if we were late on time, we're going to get we're going to run into have a collision with the other train. They were so cheap they wouldn't even make an east and a westbound line. They would lay the track on snow. Well, when the snow melts, what happens? So there's all these horrible things that would happen. But as they went on, they would enact safety measures with these train tracks being laid down, and. One time they're building this beautiful trestle bridge across this canyon in the west with the Union Pacific Railroad. And so to test the bridge, they would load up a train to double its normal payload. And they would drive it out onto the trestle and leave it there for an entire day. When it's driven out there, one of the workers looked at one of the train trestle engineers and said, are you trying to break the bridge? The engineer replied, no. I'm trying to prove that the bridge won't break. There's a difference. See, Jesus was faced with temptation and testing, but they weren't designed to see if he would sin. It was to prove that he couldn't. Jesus was tested, but he was never going to break. Satan couldn't break Jesus. See, Jesus' testing, it doesn't show his weaknesses. It shows his strength. And so when you and I are tested, it shows that we don't walk alone in those moments when we're tested and tempted, that we have a Savior who did not break, and he never will. So it shows the strength of God. And then lastly, sent. After John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. You and I will get sent out into the world and the world will think you're a little bit weird. And that's okay, Christians have always been weird. We don't have to apologize for that. I mean, even back in the book of John, when we have communion, they, take, they say, oh, they're cannibals. They're eating the body and the blood of Jesus. These people are out of their minds. There's always something about it that's going to be a little bit screwy to people that don't understand it, and that's okay. I've had many experiences in my life where other people have looked at me like I have two heads, like they have no clue like I went to a Wake Forest basketball game a few years ago and I ran into a high school friend of mine. I literally have not seen him for 20 years. But we're friends on Facebook, so we have this sort of rough idea of where we are in our lives. And so I've not talked to this guy for a long time. And it was in passing, he walks by and I was like, oh, hey, hey, how are you? And he looked at me and he said, are you a minister now? And I said, yeah. And all he said was, I could see his gears turning. He looked at me and he just went, huh, and he walked off. True story. We're going to get sent out in the world and people are going to look at us like, okay, and that's all right. Because we're not, I'm not following your perception of what's cool or uncool. We're here, we're being sent out into the world to be a witness. And maybe in that moment for this guy I saw, that was a witness moment for him. Of going, man, whatever happened to Clark? Maybe that could happen to me. See, because even when I was a young man, I would see other Christians that I knew, I would look at them and think, I want what they have. How do I get that? And then you realize it's free. It's grace. It's available to anybody to take it at any time. This free life of God, this free new life in Christ we can have. But we are called, we are tested, and we're sent. And what was Jesus sent with? He's sent with a message. And it's a very simple message. It's the message the prophets have always proclaimed in the Old Testament which is repent, repent and believe. Why do they always preach this? (laughs) Repent and believe in the good news. I believe one reason is because God knows that's the message we need to hear. It's the healing balm for our souls. We need to repent, especially during Lent, because God knows that we're prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. We're prone to believe these if statements of the tempter and think that they're true. And repent simply means just to turn around. It doesn't mean to beat yourself up, to feel horrible about yourself. That's not what God wants. God loves you. It means, simply means to turn around, to change your mind, to turn away from the thing that you know you shouldn't do and turn back to God. And this, this will be a lifelong process over and over again. We'll need to turn back to God, recenter Back in God. And then we're being sent with a message of good news. Good news. Not one of accusation. Not one of judgment. God is not against you. God is for you. God's always been for you. So I think it's really good on the first Sunday of Lent to take a few moments and just reflect on how God has called you. Maybe if you can remember your baptism. Remember the faces of the people who who loved you. I remember my Sunday school teachers when I was a kid. All these ways that God was calling you to himself. Maybe these little holy moments that seemed innocuous at the time, but the Holy Spirit used them to plant seeds in your life, to remind you of God saying, you're my beloved. Nothing's ever going to change that. So let's take a few moments and pray. Just reflect on how God has called you throughout your life. God, we come before you this moment, maybe just to reflect on staying grounded in how our identity as your beloved, and that we need to do that, God, because when the testing comes, we need to be reminded of our foundation of our lives. God, bring us to mind of all the ways that you've been so faithful, you've carried us through whatever the situations were. God, the times that you said to us that your grace is sufficient for, for us, your strength is made perfect in weakness. God, the ways that you've been faithful to us. Maybe it was an old Bible teacher or a family member or a friend, parents that prayed that God used in our lives to, to draw us, God, to you. God, we give thanks. Thank you, Lord, that you call us, that you're with us in the testing, and that you then send us into the world to do great, great work into the world. And I pray that we would have that message of repent and believe the good news, and that we, of course, would temper it with your holy love. God, you're so patient with us. And maybe there's someone listening right now who... God, you're calling them to yourself for the first time. They've never responded in faith to your draw of your love and work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Maybe they thought, I'm not good enough. I'm tainted goods. I'll never amount to anything. I'm rotten. God, I pray they would know they're in good company. We all fall into that category in a sense, God, that we all fall short of your glory. We're all works in progress. God, your desire is to draw all men and women to yourself so that none would perish, none. And all would know life and life to the full. So I pray here and now, maybe we've never made that response to you before today, God, that we would do in our hearts to say to you, God, I, I give you my life. Let me experience, God, who you are. Or maybe you're here today and you're a Christian and, and you're, you're just tired you're just worn out your well is dry Spirit of God fill the souls here that need that bring your healing touch upon their lives that they would see God it is you are better than we can imagine it is too good to be true I mean, actually it is true So God, fill everyone here with your love to reflect on our belovedness, God, in your heart for us. In Jesus' name we do pray.